On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. They say it's always darkest before the dawn. If that's true, then the sun rose for Billy Joel in 1983. That's not to say things were bleak before then, but the past year or so carried a more somber tone. In 1982, Billy was in a bad motorcycle accident that left his hands severely injured for months. Despite this, he completed, released, and toured behind the Nylon Curtain. The album is arguably his most ambitious and also his most serious and thematically heavy release. But that all turned around the next year. 1983 found Billy Joel jet-setting to private islands, dating supermodels, and releasing his ninth studio album, An Innocent Man. Stylistically, the music harkened back to the 50s and early 60s. And in contrast to its predecessor, it was one of his biggest sellers and easily his most lighthearted. An Innocent Man would go platinum seven times and spawn seven charting singles. In 1984, Billy would tour in support of his blockbuster hit. But the previous year, he was just enjoying life. In this episode, we're diving deep into 1983, the year that saw an album release, hit singles, heavy rotation music videos, tabloid pages, romance, and more for Billy Joel. Some people stay far away from the door If there's a chance of it opening up So over the last week while preparing for this episode, I did a lot of listening to both The Nylon Curtain and An Innocent Man and just how incredibly different they are. To me, that's a big theme of 1983 is how much his life and music changed in that 12 months. And seemingly to that point, overnight almost, it really really seems like that. There's always the idea of 80s Joel, which I guess is really became cemented after Step Brothers. You know, it's really a thing. And even though An Innocent Man was his third studio album of the decade, it really felt like this was the beginning of 80s Joel, even as different as Glass Houses was from its two predecessors, and even as different as Nylon Curtain was from all of it. This was the album that really just ushered in the 80s superstar Joel. Yeah, that was my feeling as well. You know, this also coincides with really the explosion of MTV Mm -hmm. and music videos. Billy getting exposed to such a new audience that really wasn't to this level, even on the Nylon Curtain. I mean, you know, we saw from live from Long Island, he was selling out stadiums with no problem by this point, obviously. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, yeah, he became a superstar in a different way. 
Kind of like Springsteen did, I guess, the next year in 84 with Born in the USA. Yeah. You know, when he went from being just like a, a really important rock figure to an overall pop superstar, this is what Billy Joel did, I guess, really in 83. I really do think the era of the music video and MTV played such a huge role. These artists, like you said, that were already stars selling out arenas just got catapulted into this new stratosphere. This is also when you saw record sales just exploding into just a whole nother level that nobody had seen before. That's interesting. That makes sense. But I didn't I didn't realize that that's when that first explosion happened. I mean, there was a big one in the late 90s, I guess, right before Napster kicked in. But uh, the, the early 80s was a big boom as well. It's also when you had three formats going on. Vinyl records were still a big deal. Right. Cassettes were probably at their peak in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And then 82, 81 is when it first got introduced. But by the mid to late 80s, CDs were starting to really hit the market. That's true. You got a car with a tape deck. You bought your first disc man and you still have a turntable at home. Well, there's three copies of the same album. Yeah. We were talking before just a second for about like the other big 80s guys, you know, Springsteen and Michael Jackson. I'll, I'll throw Phil Collins in there real quick, too. And I want to make the point that arguably the four big albums of the early 80s, especially from people that were around in the 70s and all four of these artists were, was Born in the USA, An Innocent Man, Thriller, and no jacket required, right? Just note that Phil Collins, Michael Jackson, and Bruce Springsteen made albums that sounded like the 80s, sort of defined the 80s sound. But right. Billy Joel made one that sounded nothing like anything else. It was a retro album that somehow made it. You know, this isn't to, to discount all the other albums that came out. I, I'm sure somebody's going to yell at me for not mentioning Prince, but Prince right. wasn't around. Did Prince, Prince didn't have that presence in the 70s that I'm drawing as a comparison. Right. Yeah, note that Billy was the one that did it with this offhanded retro album where the other ones were, I mean, were really, really crafted. Spring Scenes was really crafted. Obviously, Thriller was. I don't know mm-hmm. too much about the making of No Jacket Required, but you know, coming off the first album there, the first yeah. Phil Collins solo album, you know, that was a very deliberate maneuver. Those albums in particular feel like of their time. Yeah. And they sound, like you said, they sound like 80s albums right. for sure. Mm-hmm. The amazing feat accomplished by An Innocent Man, it still sounds very fresh. Yeah, yeah. You know, it wasn't the Stray Cats where you listen to it and you're like, this is clearly a 50s thing. I mean, I remember listening to An Innocent Man as a kid, and the thought never occurred to me that this was a retro album. This just sounded like another Billy Joel album that my cousin had. And coming off of The Nylon Curtain, which was much darker themes, and the production was so different, but to go mere months later and do something so different and so fresh is just incredible. And, you know, not to stay on the album too long, even though obviously it's it's the thing to talk about for 1983, I think it was... Rudy DeVito said in an interview somewhere, they put that album together so quick that he was sure it was going to be a flop. You know, his thinking was, there's no way this can come this easily and sell a lot of records. Like, it's just going to disappear. When Billy did a series of interviews for the Complete Albums box set, Mm -hmm. he talked about, yeah, that they pretty much wrote almost the entire record in the studio over just a matter of like six weeks, which is incredible. I wrote it in the studio. I wrote most of this album in the recording studio. I think within six weeks I had written most of the material on the album and it wasn't to to have hit records again who thought that uh you know songs that sounded like the late 50s early 60s acapella oh for the longest time is another song on here who would have figured they could ever be hit records in the 80s and they were the fact that he could go in with the band and all these other great musicians and just roll this out in like a month and a half two months you can hear it on the recording how much fun he was having yeah 
Yeah, it's a loose album in a good way. Yeah. It almost seems like there's a part of the story that's missing, especially as as I did the research too. You know, you just sort of know the lore. You know mm-hmm. that the nylon curtain was a big arduous affair. You know that uh, he had the motorcycle accident. You know that he got divorced. And then we know that, oh, well, then he met Chrissy Brinkley and he was all happy and he went and made an innocent man. But it's not only that, you know, it's, it's where he met her, you know, down in St. Bart's in this, you know, private island getaway kind of thing. Yeah. Where he was being the guy that he he had never been really before. I mean, not to say that he wouldn't go and sit down at a piano in a hotel, but right. he was, I guess he was already starting to like dress a little sharper, so to speak. I mean, Life from Long Island still had the old 70s looking suit. Everything after this, he was dressing sleeker. He cut his hair, things like that. He looked younger in 83 than he did in 82. This is true. This is very true. I, I kind of want to talk about the videos for a second, just because it's a nice segue here. I always love to like make little connections and come up with a fun little thesis. Uh, the Uptown Girl video was directed by John Small. You know, been a part of Billy's career pretty much since the beginning. Uh, mm-hmm. You know who the choreographer was? No. Michael Peters, who also did... Really? Uh, yeah, Beat It. Beat It, right? Yeah. Right. No kidding. Yeah, so it's, it's funny to, to see Billy usher in the 80s Joel thing with a person that had been there the whole time and with a person that had also done a decade-defining video. And what's always funny, of course, is that Billy hated the videos. He hated doing videos, and yet they worked out so well for him. (laughs) Part of him appreciated the positive effect, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. but he's never a visual guy. He would much rather be on a stage performing live for an audience than in front of cameras any day of the week. Music started out being performed on a stage, even before there were records. Uh, The only way people got to hear music was by going somewhere and seeing it performed. Uh... Those were the original videos were concerts, you know, real live concerts. So there's nothing new to seeing a performance. Um, it's, it's another means of communication. I think any form of communicating music is good. I think when you limit music to one medium, one form of communication, it starts to get stifled. I think actually the video uh, explosion in music has changed the music. Uh, so. I'm not really an actor. I mean, people have said, when are you going to make a movie? I said, what do I want to make a movie for? I'm a musician. What's wrong with being a musician? And we go, oh, you know, you got to go into movies now. I said, you know, I don't want to make movies. Uh. I want to read this quote from him about it. He says, I know I'm not a matinee idol. I don't photograph well. I don't film well. I've always been aware of that. It's one of the reasons I was comfortable being a musician. I like the anonymity of being in a studio with a microphone. That's all done behind closed doors, but then when I'd see it on screen, I would watch a video and say, no, 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 no. That's not what I had in mind at all. That's not what the guy who's singing looks like. That's an interesting point, too, because, you know, with music videos, it's someone else's imagination of what your song makes them think. And it's because a, it's not the artist coming up with the video treatment most of the time. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you watch the Billy's videos, you can tell that he used a lot of different directors because they're stylistically all over the place. Although what I almost take that back for an innocent man, because those videos were so delightfully over the top. But the videos here in 83 just took them to a whole new level. As we go through the year, we'll um, dip into the videos that came out in 83. Mm-hmm. So with An Innocent Man, the singles were spread between 83 and 84. So there's going to be a handful of uh, singles and videos from this album that we won't really get into much, but cover more when we get to uh, 1984. And as we think about going through the year, you know, unlike 2003, when we did 2003, we said, wow. 
there's a lot here. There's like something almost every week that we could talk about. This time, it's it's really the opposite. As far as anything official goes, there's maybe one show that was at the University of Iowa Carver Hawkeye Arena. That was April 6th of 83. I'm going to conjecture and say that this is one of those kind of rehearsal shows you had talked about a couple episodes back where they sort of do a dry run with the lighting rig and things like that. Yeah, that's what I wonder too, because the Nylon Curtain Tour ended New Year's Eve 1982 and the An Innocent Man Tour didn't start until 1984. So to have this kind of one-off thing, I well before the actual tour even happened. Yeah, I'm actually kind of puzzled as to what the situation was with this. And let me make this point too about that. This just really falls in line with the fact that, you know, not only could Billy do no wrong in the early 80s, but this was his, I'm going to put the tour as the fourth idiosyncratic thing he did in a row. Okay, let's figure Mm -hmm. you put out your first live album. Instead of playing your hits, you did songs in the attic where you recast obscure songs. Then you do this weird, risky studio wizardry, as experimental as Billy Joel is going to get album. Then you put out a retro record for no apparent reason, just because you felt like it. And it becomes like one of the biggest hits of the decade. And then you don't tour behind it for six months. Once I figured that out, that the tour started so far after the record came out, that, that blew my mind. Do you think he was just, he needed to give his hand a rest? You know, I mean, like you figure he had his motorcycle accident. He had all these surgeries. He went right back in the studio. He went on tour. Maybe he was just like, I got to take a minute. It's not that he didn't play, obviously. It's how he met Christy, was sitting in a hotel playing piano. But that's kind of my theory. And, you know, another one that I thought of, too, was MTV was so huge for him again that he almost didn't need to jump on the road for exposure out of the gate. He had these music videos working for him. That's a good point. So it maybe gave him time to just let the album build and then put together this new live show. Yeah. And then start it in 84. Because, you know, typically a tour for a record is going to start right around when the album comes out or even a couple months prior when the lead off single will come out before the album. Yeah. And so sometimes you'll see a tour start even before a record comes out. The Innocent Man Tour had a lot more players on stage. So I sort of wonder if the rethinking of the stage show maybe had something to do with taking some extra time and working out a bigger arrangement, Mm -hmm. a really different stage plot, things like that. I couldn't say, but it's notable that when he went out in 84, there were more people with him. As we get into the early part of the year here, the first thing on the list that I put together was February of 83 is when Goodnight Saigon was released as a single. (laughs) Now, how crazy is that? That tells you how in quick succession Billy was putting out records back then. When you have the last single from a record come out within five months of your next record. Right. Almost not giving any time for there to be a dip. Yeah. I mean, that's some good placement, too. And even Goodnight Saigon, it's a classic now, but back in the day, you had to figure that was a risk to put out as a single. A seven-minute song about the Vietnam War. Not all that long after the war had ended, all things considered. I guess we should talk about this trip he took to St. Bart's. You wouldn't think we would uh, talk this much about a vacation Billy Joel took, but it was one that arguably changed trajectory for him in a few big big ways. Yeah. So he was hanging out with Paul Simon and was saying he was looking to to take a vacation. Paul told him about St. Bart's. Billy at first wouldn't want to go there because he said he doesn't like these, quote, privileged enclaves that are beautiful and luxurious, but surrounded by rampant poverty and a lot of pissed off people. I wouldn't be able to relax. Paul said, no, it's more like a French settlement. really scenic. The food is great. So Billy decides to go all by himself. He hangs out by the beach. He gets burnt to a crisp. He goes inside, (laughs) says, what the hell? I'll start playing piano. 
overwalks not only Christy Brinkley, but L. McPherson as well. Um, he says, so I look back down on my keys and vibe silently the piano. Thank you. Thank you so much. You did it again. You never let me down. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, the piano gets in the girl. Yeah. And do you know who the third woman was that came up? I'm not mistaking. Was it Whitney Houston? It was. It was. Here I am with the book of my hand, by the way. I'm not pulling this stuff off the top of my head. And I'm just asking Michael, oh, do you happen to know? You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> so here's Billy Joel trying to chat up Elle McPherson and Chrissy Brinkley at the same time. And this 16 year old girl comes up and says, excuse me, I want to be a singer. Would you listen to me? And he tried as politely as he could to be like, you got to get out of here. I mean, I'm in the middle of something, you know, and it turned out he could have discovered Whitney Houston. Amazing. Amazing. I guess it's a story that would have come out, but it's something to appreciate that Billy would would tell the story himself. The line about him being uncomfortable going to those resort towns that were like luxurious, surrounded by poverty, that tells you exactly right there. Like even as he's so incredibly successful that he was just always still uncomfortable being elite. That brings up something that I, I wanted to mention before when we started on the videos, but I'll mention it now too, because we're kind of dipping in and out of the videos. I do wonder sometimes if th- that's part of why these videos were successful for him, because they couldn't be cookie cutter. They couldn't be White Snake or Sheena Easton videos. It wouldn't have worked. Right. He wouldn't have looked right. The songs didn't match. And so they came up with these these things that were, you know, very elaborate, as was the time, but not in the same ways. You know, the fact that he looks like he does just kind of smirking through them. I wouldn't right. be surprised if that helped endear him to audiences, whether they understood why or not. But they must have yeah. stuck out, you know? You just found yourself rooting for him in the storyline of these videos. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to, yeah, it was Tell Her About It. And that was a really fun video and they did a lot of throwback stuff. Keeping the Faith was just ridiculous and colorful and stuff. Uptown Girl was Uptown Girl. And for the longest time was pretty funny too because he looked like he, you know, looked like he was all old and stuff. I'm looking at the timeline of events that we put together and there is a sizable gap in the springtime. And I would wager that this is when they were recording the album. That makes sense because it came out in the summer and we know he wasn't recording in January or February. So it seems like this is when he ran in there and did it. And it was a quick record to make too. So figure a couple months in the spring and they had it all buttoned up. Yeah. And you know, it's it's sort of a surprising quick record. It had a few guests on it. It had some different production elements. It had the horn charts, things that had to be arranged. You had to bring in more players. When you're dealing with musicians of this caliber, obviously it's not difficult to get this done quickly especially tell her about it required a sophisticated horn chart. Somebody had to write that up. Somebody had to get all the people in there. The longest time came out of prime of your life. And then they tried to get the persuasions in to do the background vocals and it wasn't working. And then Billy yep. Joel had to track all the vocal parts himself. So even with it being such a loose sound of record, Toots Thielman was on it. There was still a lot going on. It wasn't a Stray Cats record, you know, three guys in the studio cracking out rockabilly. <laughs> right. It wasn't like Glass Houses was. Yeah. Where yeah. it was literally just the band and nobody else. Right. On that record. Mm-hmm. This, there was a whole host of incredible players on it. It's it's actually pretty incredible. Yeah. And a little bit before the record came out, the first single hit, which mm-hmm. was Tell Her About It, which right. came out July 28th. And this was actually Billy's second number one song. First one being... Still rock and roll to me. Was that the first number one? I was going to go with Just the Way You Are. And it was only number one for one week. It actually replaced another Phil Ramone produced song, Maniac, 
That was number one just prior and tell her about it. Hit number one, September 24th, 1983. So that was my fourth birthday. Ah. That actually went gold, the single itself, back when you used to actually chart how many 45s were sold. (laughs) And then this was the first video for the album. Yeah. And it was a very unique video. Had my man Rodney Dangerfield in it. Had an Ed Sullivan impersonator. Had a lot of fun. Yeah, that guy did a great Ed Sullivan. He did. You know, as a kid, I didn't know much about it. When you go back and you watch it, having watched like Ed Sullivan clips, you realize he really did do a good job with it. Mm -hmm. I remember I used to watch the videos all the time, and my parents didn't pay that much attention because they're just Billy Joel videos. You don't have to keep an eye on anything for starters. But I remember my mom walking in being like, that's not, is that? No, it can't be. And she's like doing the math in her head. Like, there's no way this song came out that early. (laughs) The treatment of it goes back to Billy discovering all these artists and the Beatles and everything on the Ed Sullivan show. I thought it was a cool idea. All these different scenes of people either watching him or it being on in the background and things like that. I I thought that was a a fun approach. I always liked that they showed the cameras and the production and stuff. That they could have just made it look like a broadcast, but they really blew it out. Like you felt like you were in the studio. Yeah. 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 That was a really, really nice effect. Even going as far as to put the CBS logo on the cameras, which is the network that broadcasts the Ed Sullivan show. That's right. That's right. They did. Yeah. Now that was easy to do because CBS owned Columbia Records <laughs> at the time, so that was no problem. I love the band name they gave Billy's DJ band, and BJ and the Affordables. <laughs> <laughs> As this is happening, there's something going on behind the scenes that I don't think Billy even knew about. Artie Rip had been in touch with Columbia Records to remix and re-release Cold Spring Harbor after 12 years. Since Artie Rip owned that record, he waited until Billy's popularity was as such when Billy was selling a ton of records. What I saw in the liner notes, it was July to September is when that was being done. He didn't like the album to begin with, and then they're tinkering, no. and they're about to drop it again at the end of this year, which gives me a great looking back and moving forward at the same time kind of thing to right. say, where he, he's catapulting <laughs> exactly. himself into the 80s, and uh, a skeleton from his past is sort of cropping up there. <laughs> yeah, and knowing what he's always said about that album, I know he had, one, nothing to do with it, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was even kept from his radar so as we move along through the summer found a cool clip of alan hunter from mtv doing you know this is pre-kurt loader mtv news mm-hmm. you know but they would do these little news breaks alan hunter is talking about a new rodney dangerfield film called easy money <laughs> that billy wrote the <laughs> title song for he also mentioned that billy was in the studio finishing mm-hmm. up a record yeah. so this was the official unofficial announcement of the new album they didn't have a title they didn't have anything like that yet but it was yeah. just letting the cat out of the bag that something was coming right We move into August, Mm -hmm. and um, August 8th is when An Innocent Man is officially released. Now, the RIAA website says July 15th, but Wikipedia and Billy's site both say August 8th. So I think I'm going to go with August 8th. And you found this interesting bit about Mark Rivera joining the band, because this was the first album he did with Billy. Right. Even though he did the Nylon Curtain tour, this is the first album that he was involved in. Here's something else that came up in this new Rolling Stone interview with him. Let's say Doug Stegmeyer strikes again because Doug was the one that told Mark Billy's looking for a new saxophone player. See, I had no idea. I had no idea that it was Doug that got Mark into the fold. I right. had no clue. Yeah, that's not, that never really came up with anyone. Do you want to read the little uh, the little quote here? Yeah, so this is pretty cool. This is from a Rolling Stone article from the very end of September of 2020 this year with Mark Rivera. Uh, Mark says, the nylon curtain was already recorded. Doug said, hey, are you looking for a gig? I said, what's up? He said, Billy is looking to replace Richie. I was like, yeah. 
And now here's what right. Mark Rivera gets to do jumping into this gig. Not that he wasn't, you know, well on his way by then, but he does a tour uh, that culminates in Live from Long Island. And then he goes in to make this record and he's playing with, amongst other people, Michael Brecker and Dave Sanborn, which is, you know, those are some no small players. Yeah, yeah, those are heavy hitters. On Tell Her About It and Easy Money, seeing the backgrounds on Uptown Girl and Tell Her About It. And here's your trivia for the night, playing Triangle on An Innocent Man. I never, ever bothered to look up who did it, but now we know. Yeah. It's Mark. Yeah. Let's put this two in the uh, stars aligning category. The stars align where Billy gets divorced. You know, he's doing his thing. He goes to St. Bart's. He meets these hot women. He's enjoying single life. He's enjoying single life. He's like, oh, I'm just going to toss off this record. But he did Easy Money, which is completely in the vein of the album. So did Easy Money in any way inform the rest of the album? Or did it just make sense to do that because that was the mode he was in? So the film actually comes out in August. So yeah. That came out on August 19th. Right. Just after, literally five days after Tell Her About It hits number one, mm-hmm. single number two is released, which is Uptown Girl. Is this possibly, at the end of the day, Billy's biggest hit? Now, we're not talking classic. We're not talking fan right. favorite. We're talking the one with the most longevity on radio. The one, if you say Billy Joel, for better or worse, people are going to say, oh, the guy that does this. Could I would be. venture to say yes. Yeah. Piano Man's the perennial, but it's sort of in its own category, you know? I'd say if, if I'm going to go number two slot, you're looking at maybe We Didn't Start the Fire or Still Rockin' Old to Me. Yeah. But I'm going to say Uptown Girl runs away with it. Uptown Girl peaked at number three on the Billboard Hot 100. It stayed there for three weeks from November to December. Two, three months after it came out is when it peaked. It was riding high on the charts for a while. Yeah. And to me, when I think of growing up and watching videos and Billy Joel and all that, Uptown Girl was the one I always remembered. More than Pressure? All right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Pressure was the one yeah. that always stuck out to me. I just remember trying to mimic, you know, when they were like singing into the wrenches and the whole bit. <laughs> <laughs> doing that yeah. as a kid yeah i remember watching it and just something registering that it was different from the others with all the the choreography and all the dancing and stuff they really made it look like chrissy just wandered in too that was some good piece of directing there you know yeah he just kind of wandered in wandered into his life yeah yeah exactly that really came through and i'll just go ahead and attribute that to to it being john small again you know when he did shay he did a good job of teasing these intimate moments out of this huge production and i think in this case mm-hmm. he did the same thing where you know this could have been just straight schmaltz but maybe he just knew billy well enough that even unconsciously he was able to really tap into what was going on there's an alternate intro yeah i had never seen that was used on mtv which was shot with the regular video if you guys remember the video starts with just new york street noise and then you see the tow truck drive by and then it kicks right into the video like that's the version that i know most people know yeah so there's this alternate version that that happens and then you faintly hear tell her about it being played in the background, mm-hmm. which is bizarre, right? <laughs> and then they cut to inside the gas station and the clerk or whatever is sitting behind the desk watching tell her about it on MTV. He's like blown away by this video. It was a bit <laughs> of overacting if you ask me. Yeah. And then he like walked into the other room. His like mind is blown that it's the same guy or something. <laughs> I don't know. It was a very strange. It totally doesn't make sense with the rest of the video. It's funny because when you go back and you watch the regular video, you see like just where the cut occurs.
This video was filmed, I think it was the intersection of Bowery and Bond. I was reading up on the location mm -hmm. here. And yeah. so not far from where CBGB was in the Bowery, um, it was an old Snowco gas station that was torn down in the 90s. Mm -hmm. So it, the gas station no longer exists. Some sleuth out there, not me, found it in like an indie film from the late 80s. Oh, really? Yeah, it's like an opening sequence where you see a couple characters walking by and they're literally walking by the gas station. That's the only other appearance I've seen of that gas station anywhere. Yeah, they did it on a summer night. It was so hot that like Chrissy Brinkley's heels were like sinking into the asphalt because the asphalt was getting soft. And that's what's funny about it. They lit it so well that it almost looked like a, a soundstage. It was. It on, does it was kind of like um, like beat it. Yeah, like, goes going back to beat it. Right. It's that same <laughs> color treatment. This gives you an idea with how fast this record was selling. We have the album coming out in August, August 8th. And then by October 3rd, it was certified gold and platinum. Platinum is what, a million? A million copies in the U.S. Yeah. So in two months, it was a million seller. That's ridiculous. You don't really put these things into perspective because you hear about an album going platinum and it's an album you've heard all your life. So you're like, all right, well, that makes sense. Platinum. And you, you stop and you think like a million people bought this record. In two months. In two months. How many is that a day? <laughs> you know? I think these videos really catapulted it. And that goes back to my theory of him waiting to tour while these videos were doing well. Mm -hmm. I've got a copy of it that was handed down to me from my aunt and uncle. It was their copy from the 80s and it still had the shrink wrap on it. Uh -huh. By then, the record had gone triple platinum because that's what it said on the sticker. It's like the triple platinum album includes the hits and it's like seven, six songs. Yeah. It's crazy. It's like half the record is listed on the front. It's like The Stranger. The Stranger and Innocent Man are the ones where people know all but two songs on the album. Like everybody but your hardcore Billy Joel fans know seven of the nine songs on The Stranger, whether they like Billy Joel or not. Innocent Man is, is almost the same thing where people know all those songs. That would have been on average 16,000 copies sold a day for two months to go platinum. A day. In in two months, yeah. That's unbelievable. 16,666 yeah. uh, on average, you know. It peaked at number four on the Billboard charts. Mm -hmm. So as successful as it was, there were so many huge albums around this time that just couldn't get pushed out. Well, Thriller was still going strong. I mean, Thriller came out in November of 82, and yep. the single Thriller came out in January of 84. You know, you were riding high on the, on the uh, Thriller train there. Yeah, here's a list of the top 10 records of 1983 to give you some context to some of these other huge records. This is the top 10 list from Ultimate Classic Rock. So number 10 was Frontiers by Journey. Number nine, Let's Dance, David Bowie. Number eight was Genesis, Genesis. Number seven, Rebel Yell, Billy Idol. And number six, Peace of Mind by Iron Maiden. Number five, Kill em All, Metallica. Four, Def Leppard, Pyromania. Three, Shout of the Devil, Motley Crue. Two, Synchronicity, The Police. One, Eliminator, ZZ Top. So that's the top 10 rock records. Let's see, top selling album, Billboard, 200 number one albums of 1983. As we're looking up the pop ones, man, let's not forget, there's a bunch of really good albums also that came out. Okay, so the Flashdance soundtrack, Business as Usual by Men at Work. I mean... That record came out in 81, so that's another record that was so big. Oh. And it was still going into 83, which is, I think, when they released Cargo. Let's see, biggest hit singles. Karma Chameleon, Billie Jean, Flashdance, What a Feeling, David Bowie, Last Dance, A Police Every Breath You Take. Africa? No, that was 82. Oh, no. That was, well, that, yeah, yep. that was in 82, but I'm sure that was still, uh, yeah, a couple other, uh, oh, well, uh, Kill Em All, right? 
Yeah, Metallica Kill Em All, their yeah. first record, came out in 83. Yeah, how that didn't knock Billy and, and Michael Jackson out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sold like 7 million copies now. You know, they were still pretty well underground in the U.S. for the first year or two. Mm. Oh, yeah. I mean. uh, Swordfish Trombones by Tom Waits. Speaking in Tongues by the Talking Heads. Holy Diver. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dio. That was, Dio. You know, yeah. that's a, that was a landmark metal album. Chat at the Devil. True, um, yeah. Yeah, Men at Work Cargo was 83, so that was out by then. Def Leppard by Romania. Yep. Yeah. Metal Health, Quiet Riot. Probably the biggest hard rock record of the early 80s. John Mellencamp. Uh-huh. That was a big one. Lionel Richie Can't Slow Down. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what? The 90125 by Yes, the one with Owner of a Lonely Heart. You know, that was... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Touched by the Rhythmics. You know, U2 I... War came out in 83. Yeah. I've always said that the 80s was, in my opinion, the last golden era of record production. Because uh, the 90s came along and the 90s was all about being stripped down. So you didn't have the kind of things that, let's say, a Phil Ramone would be best known for, per se. You know, just really crafting these orchestrations and things. And by the time things started getting a little more complex, it was all digital and it's great, but it's like CGI versus practical effects. You know, you get it done, but you don't have that wow factor of, wow, I I, I can't believe they pulled that off. Because you know they could just do anything with a computer nowadays. You know, looking at, at this record, you know, again, coming off Glass Houses, coming off the Nylon Curtain where they really used uh, the studio as an instrument. Not that they use the studio as an instrument as much here, but again, I think it's different to say that Billy did all the vocals on for the longest time himself overdubbing. I think there's a little more to be said to that when you're doing it on tape. Um, you yeah. You know, flying in the horns on these songs, uh, doing all these right. different things, having Toots Thielman do harmonica. You know, you had to bring these people in the studio. It's not like today yeah. where a guy could be in France and you could send him a file and he'll put it together well, on funny his you mentioned, and send it back. Yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned France because actually, for Leave a Tender Moment Alone, mm-hmm. they went to Toots. They went to him to get it. Right. I think he lived in France at the time. Yeah. So I think it was like Phil Ramone and his engineer took tapes, Yeah. went to France. Mm-hmm. to get him to play on the record and then brought it back. Right. I remember I was interviewing, do you remember the band, the Silver Sun Pickups? Oh yeah. Yeah, they were good. I was interviewing them and they said, yeah, I just found this so interesting. They said it in passing because this was 2005, 2006. They were talking about touring and they were in the van and they would pull over near a coffee shop to download the mixes. Their engineer would send them like a mix of a song. You know, you didn't have a mobile hotspot. They used to have to like pull in somewhere and steal some Wi-Fi for a minute to download it and keep going. (laughs) Metallica was doing their Injustice for All record when they were on the Monsters of Rock tour with Van Halen in 88. Uh And that was while the record was being mixed. There was no sending references back when they were in, you know, Chicago. They would finish a show, fly to whatever studio it was being mixed in, be there for two days working on mixes, fly back out to do shows, fly Mm -hmm. back to work on mixes, They were just bouncing back and forth throughout the entire process. Right. You know the story about Axis Bold as Love by Jimi Hendrix? No, I don't. They had to re-record almost the entire album because Jimi took the tape to a party and lost it. Oh my gosh. No way. I think he lost it in the cab, he thinks. (laughs) Something crazy like that. 
you know, you wonder how different it sounds. Doing a record at such a moment in time, it's like it's never going to sound the same as when you do it at that moment. And especially with that band, too. I mean, you know, Mitch Mitchell was a firecracker. You know, he, he did. Oh, you get yeah. the feeling he did what he did that day, you know, especially. Yeah, Hendrix it's like too, they didn't obviously. play the same thing twice. Yeah, yeah. But back to 83 here. Yeah. So this is, I mean, 83 was a pretty big year. I mean, I'm sure you can look at other years and, and pull a bunch of landmark records. But this is almost like the 1967 of the 80s, you know, like a lot of stuff came out that I think really defined the decade. I'll make this point, too, because it's something to consider. Uh, all these new bands are putting out these landmark albums, you know. And we say the Billy's in this handful of artists from the 70s that redefine things for themselves and for the decade, like Phil Collins, Michael Jackson, Bruce Springsteen. You know, let's not forget that there are some artists from the 70s that are hitting a low point in this year. Not a low, low point, but uh, so Elvis Costello's album from that year was Punch the Clock. It's a decent album, but it's certainly not one of his best regarded uh, some may argue with me, but Bark of the Moon by Ozzy, I don't think was nearly as good as the first uh, two records before it. And okay, so Paul Simon, you know, he puts out Hearts and Bones, which is kind of his nadir, you know, came right before Graceland. It was right in the end of his big wave in the 70s. And he kind of takes a dip with Hearts and Bones. From what I read, yeah, he literally didn't know it was going to go on with his career after that. And then he comes back with Graceland after that. It's just the point where this wasn't a sure shot for anyone. This could have gone a couple ways for a lot of different people. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And with Billy's recording career, this was the year that after this, his recording output started to slow drastically. We mentioned that this was studio album number nine, nine albums in 12 years, right? Right. That's an album every year and change. And Innocent Man and The Nylon Curtain were only a year apart. An Innocent Man and The Bridge, three years. Bridge and Stormfront, another three years. Three years. Stormfront and River of Dreams, four years. And then that was it. Yeah, I charted this out and his runs went two, three, four. Piano Man and Street Life Serenade, 73, 74. Mm -hmm. And then Turnstiles through 52nd Street, 76, 77, 78. And mm-hmm. then he had arguably his, his biggest streak, if you count Songs in the Attic, which I would because it wasn't just a tour souvenir, 80, yeah. 81, 82, 83 from Glass Houses to An Innocent Man. That's an interesting pattern I didn't notice at the time. So there's three recordings that weren't on An Innocent Man that I, I found were kind of notable. Mm-hmm. There's a song called If, and this is essentially like This Night. I really like this. Maybe, I mean, This Night was one of my favorites, at least off An Innocent Man for a long time. And Sometimes I really love it. Sometimes I'm like, I cringe just a little at the uh, the opening doo-wop line, you know. Who's to tell what would have happened with If because, you know, they didn't get so far that they put a whole bunch of more musicians on it. Stripped down like this, it reminds me of Elvis Costello. In a yeah. really good way. And he hits this one yeah. beautiful, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, I should have taken this to somebody ahead of time to tell me what it is. If it's, if you would call it a blue note or like a, what it is, but he goes, he must go out of the key or he's, he's going modal. Something happens. You know, that one note that just sounds so good. He's doing this melodic line and it's sticking yeah. right in the key where you think he's going to stay. And then he just hits this one note. That's just a little blue, just a little out in the, in the best way possible. And most yeah. people wouldn't think to right. go there. If there was time like it used to be, would you be anyway? If there were nobody else around, I would have found that it's all.
The other two recordings here appear on the My Lives box set. And we're going to dive into that whole thing, you know, down the road here. But Mm -hmm. one is a demo for Christy Lee with a totally different feel. It's got a shuffle now. It's got like a boogie woogie, a shuffle thing going on. Yeah, it was pretty hot, but not as hot as the one that made the album. Yeah, I I like it a lot. I think it's fun. Yeah. But I think they made the right choice. Yeah, for the record. Definitely. The other one is uh, on the My Lives box set. There's a demo of And So It Goes. A lot of people don't realize that it was actually written during the same time frame and batch of songs as the rest of the Innocent Man record. So this was an act- actually an 83 song. It never surfaced until Stormfront six years later. And I think we said this on an earlier episode, but what a good call, because I would have brought this album down so hard. Absolutely. This record is so lighthearted, yeah. so fun, so much youthful energy. And then to end it with melancholy and regret, it would have derailed the whole thing. It, it would have yeah. killed the vibe. You're absolutely right. And then I think the bridge is such a product of the mid 80s. Oh, yeah. That it totally wouldn't work there either. Right. It does make for a nice bookend to Stormfront. It, I think it fits really well at the end of that record. He was so fraught on that record. That's not her style. Stormfront, State of Grace, and in So It Goes were so vulnerable, even as combative as that's not her style was. Yeah. Yeah. Now, wasn't that one about Elle McPherson as well? That was sort of like the end of that? Yeah. So that's yep. funny that Elle McPherson gets the both sides of Billy treatment, like the happiest song right. and one of his saddest songs. And then Christy gets the longest Yeah. <laughs> so Christy really makes out on that deal. <laughs> so as we mentioned earlier, uh, 1983 actually wraps up with the re-release of Cold Spring Harbor in December. Yeah. Sort of the uh, and so it goes of the year. <laughs> Just really. Uh... Right. Right. Yeah. The last thing Billy would have wanted. Like we said, the album was remixed. They re-recorded quite a bit on there added some keyboards and things like that and they chopped off three minutes of you can make me free mm-hmm. i mean so you know it's considerably different than the original that's for sure and even on the album cover it's zoomed in i don't know why they did that yeah it's a funny yeah i wonder if they just cropped it a little to fix it or something or they didn't have the original i i wouldn't ascribe so much to it that they they did it as an intentional nod or anything like that you know what's right. funny about this they released it in december what an odd time like, if you're going to put that much work into yeah. a cash grab, why would you put it out at the end of the year? Maybe Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe they were thinking like, well, Talking the kids already got you know, an innocent like... man. Maybe if anybody's got Billy Joel on their Christmas list, mm-hmm. here's a release for them. Yeah, so it's funny that the year ends with that. And I guess it's worth peeking a little into 1984 because at the beginning of that year, Billy got two Grammy nominations for his work in 1983. So it says, first of all, it says the innocent man generates six top 40 singles. So they all made top 40. Uh, and three made it to the top 10. He was nominated Best Pop Vocal Performance Male and for Album of the Year. And he loses both to Michael Jackson, which, you know, again, it's like, it's a ringer. Like when they say honor just to be nominated, we'll say that here, like you weren't going to knock down Thriller. (laughs) And Phil Ramone was actually nominated that year too, but it wasn't for Billy. Um, He got nominated for Best Album of Original Score written for a motion picture or television special for Flashdance. Huh. 
So he was a producer on that, on the Flashdance soundtrack. I guess that's where Maniac came from, right? Yeah, I think so. Just one more side note on that Grammy Award show. The 26th Grammy Awards in 1984 was the highest rated Grammys Awards, still unsurpassed 51.67 million viewers. Second most watched live award show in the U.S. history after the 98 Academy Awards. I did not know that. I mean, Wikipedia lie? I don't think so. (laughs) No, never. (laughs) I remember watching it. I mean, I remember it was that and the American Music Awards at that time were both so big. So all in all, that wraps up 1983. You know, it's a big year. Wasn't as eventful in its way as 2003 was. We found so much for that one, and so many big things happened this time that there wasn't really a bunch of little things to really look Mm -hmm. into. But we did find some interesting little tidbits, I think, and we did find a way to really tie this into where Billy's career had been and where it was about to go. And it's a great opportunity to really celebrate a guy that had busted his balls for over a decade and was really reaping some of those benefits, you know, or really reaping some of those rewards now, I think. Best-selling album, some good critical acclaim, mm-hmm. feeling good, looking good, working on a new wife, new life, family's fine. family's fine. fine. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, and this was the time where he was really starting to become more than a musician, more than a recording artist. Really now starting to step into the limelight as a celebrity and a personality, Mm -hmm. which he had been able to largely avoid up to this point. Yeah. So 1983 was a big year. And Innocent Man did come out that year, and so that was a monumental record for sure. And we like to dedicate episodes to specific albums, and that's why we didn't want to dive too deeply into the album itself. We kind of were a little light there, just so we can give it its own due. Yeah. So if you want to follow along at home, you start with Goodnight Saigon, you cycle through the singles from An Innocent Man, you wrap it up with Cold Spring Harbor, and then the next day you play Beat It. (laughs) Right, exactly. I actually urge you all out there to do this. Listen to The Nylon Curtain and An Innocent Man back to back. These albums were released just about a year apart. In the time between The Nylon Curtain and An Innocent Man, he toured behind The Nylon Curtain, wrote and recorded An Innocent Man. And speaking of people out there and going back and listening to albums, now we, we had we had a little, uh, little debate on this here podcast about what happens in Root Beer Rag during our Street Life Serenade episode. And I contended that there were vocalists saying, yeah, 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 yeah. And Michael thought it was a sin. So uh, one of our uh, dedicated yep. listeners, Paul Manning, jumped right in and said, so Root Beer Rag, I've always heard it as backup singers saying, yeah, 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 yeah. So score another one for me. <laughs> oh, man, come on, guys. Where are my synth people out there? I need your support. I did post an isolated okay. synth track from it. Right. It could be both, for all I know. It could be a synth and a vocal doubling up. So, I, I think you're hedging. I, I think know. you're I'm hedging. Still, I'm still not sold. <laughs> so, you know, we'd love to hear what your thoughts are if anyone else wants to still weigh in. And uh, with 1983 here, were you a Billy fan back then? Were you listening to these records? And were you following along to Billy's development on MTV and all these music videos and everything Billy had going on and his budding relationship with Christy Brinkley that was all over the papers and the entertainment? programs and of course we'd love to you know hear more from you guys i'm also curious to know if back then anybody heard an innocent man and thought billy joe was jumping the shark with a novelty record that just occurred to me either way let us know what what did you think when you first heard an innocent man what were your memories of the early 80s of 83 of all these great records coming out well you can find us on email you can hit us up on all the social media outlets 
Yeah, our email is glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. And uh, we try to get back to everybody. So uh, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. And your comments, your likes, and your shares on social media mean a lot to us. So continue to do that on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And another big thing that helps Jack and I and the podcast is uh, if you leave a positive review and a rating on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you listen to the podcast, that helps the audience grow and helps the algorithms work in a way that gets us in front of some more people. So if you guys could do that for us, that would mean a lot. And we'll see you next time. All right, we'll see you soon. Yeah, 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 keeping the faith. I'm keeping the faith. Yes, I You know I'm keeping the faith. Oh, yes, I You know I'm keeping the faith.